Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask your blessing upon us as we study your holy word today. Transform us a bit deeper into your likeness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive into Genesis 1 today, and I want to start by offering just a very brief intro. Um, this portion of the book of Genesis is known as the primeval history by biblical scholars. It tells the story of the beginning of the world's existence prior to the call of Abram, and so it's a little bit more universal in terms of its scope. And I want to say off the bat that we really don't want to read this as literal history, the way you might read a history of the Civil War, as very concerned with historical fact, the way that moderns are concerned with fact. But at the same time, I want to caution us as reading this as nothing more than a fairy tale, uh, a nice story you know, on par with something like Cinderella, because this is the word of God. We do believe God speaks through it. And so I really see this literature as what J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis called true myth, right? So if a myth speaks deeply about psychological truths and symbolic language, what a true myth does is really just point us to the greatest powers in the world beyond our grasp. And all the smaller myths kind of uh, point us to, or, or the true myth um, is what gives the smaller myths their uh, explanatory power. But the idea here is that truth, the deepest truths, cannot be grasped and mastered by the intellect. They can only be experienced and known, meaning we have to move beyond the intellect, beyond rationalizing things, and myth takes us there. In fact, someone once told me that the etymology of the word metaphor means to carry beyond. In a sense, uh, a myth is meant to carry us beyond our intellectual concepts alone into the truth itself. And so there's a lot of ways we can read Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, this would have been a very meaningful text to the nomadic Hebrew people who knew themselves as liberated from Egypt and called to inhabit the promised land. It would have been meaningful um, or is meaningful figuratively or allegorically as uh, a text that points to the word who became flesh, died, and rose again. We see uh, Paul doing this a lot in 1 Corinthians, where, where he'll say something like, the people of Israel drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so here Paul equates the rock in the wilderness as Christ himself. And so we can look for traces of Christ in the book of Genesis as early as chapters 1 through 11. We need to read this as the Spirit speaking to the church in the present. And then I think we can also read this historically, literally. We just need to be careful about what we mean by history and literal and to differentiate that from uh, kind of our modern notion of, of fact because this certainly would have been seen as a meaningful history to the people of Israel. And so before we dive into the text, let me um, share a quote from Augustine. He wrote that in matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, we find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith we've received. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in search of the truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. Um, that would be to battle not for the teaching of Holy Scripture, but for our own, wishing its teaching to conform to ours, whereas we ought to wish our teaching 
to conform to that of sacred scripture. And so that's basically Augustine's way of saying when you approach this text, don't look for it to affirm what you think you already know. Rather, hold what you think you know, but hold it lightly and be ready to drop it if what you learn in the text um, challenges that. So that's how we will approach these first couple chapters of Genesis. Um, So with that said, let me just read the first half of the chapter, offer a few notes, and then we'll go into our conversation. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the whole face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning, first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so God called the dome sky and there was evening, there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. All right, so I'm gonna pause there before the human is created just to offer some notes about this creation narrative. First, I just wanna say something about this creation myth as opposed to others common in the day. 
you know, so there was the Babylonian creation myth that involved Marduk, one of the gods fighting with the other gods. And I'm not quite recall how the story went, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, Marduk's belly was slashed open with the sword and from that violence came the earth and the humans were created to do all the work that the gods did not want to do. Now, please don't quote me on that, uh, but, but the Babylonian creation myth was about the gods fighting and the earth born of violence and human beings being created to do work that the gods uh, did not want to do, right? And so contrast that with this narrative where God creates things with intentionality and says, this is good, and says, be fruitful and multiply and blesses the creation over and over again. Or compare this, for instance, with, you know, a Greek myth. I think um, it's been a while since I've read the myth of Pandora, but I know one of the awful things in Pandora's box was work. And compare that to the beauty of Adam being put in a garden to till and keep the soil as a holy and meaningful thing of God blessing and sanctifying work and giving human beings a Sabbath day. So before we even look at the narrative, it's important to name that this is a narrative of great grace and intentionality, and that it's meant to bear witness to a very good God and a very good creation. So that's just the first thing we need to say. Now, uh, this is a reading in our lectionary for Trinity Sunday. I'm not sure it's on Trinity Sunday every year, but it's on Trinity Sunday many years. And one of the reasons for that is, well, you'll have the plural. You know, God said, let us make humankind in our image. But you also have traces of the Trinity in the first three verses. So I want you to note in verse three, where it says, then God said. So you have God, the Hebrew is Elohim. And we can see this as the father, but then you have God's speech. God said, let there be light. And in the Christian tradition, God's speech is the logos, which we see at the very beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was God's speech, and the word was God, the word was with God. So you have God, you have logos, and then you have the wind in verse two, hovering over the face of the waters. And of course, in Hebrew, there was no different word for wind and spirit. So you have God's creating spirit, you have God's speech, and you have Elohim, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you are a Trinitarian Christian, um, I think it's important to kind of see this action at the very beginning of the text, because the Christian belief is that the creation is an act of love that flows from the Trinity. A few other things to note. So in verse five, there was evening, there was morning, the first day. The definite article, T-H-E, the, it's not actually in the Hebrew. So the Hebrew would read, there was evening, there was morning, first day. The definite article doesn't come until day number six. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But one is it would not be appropriate to think of these days as 24-hour periods that you know in your daily rhythms. That's not necessarily the only or the most appropriate way to view these days. For one, the church fathers did not necessarily view the days in that particular way. They were familiar with the passages in 
first Peter where it says, you know, one day is like a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years like one day that God's concept of time is not the same as ours. But not only that, um, notice how you and I measure a day by uh, the relationship between the movement of the earth and the sun, right? That, that our measurement of a day is tied to the sun. But the sun actually isn't created <laughs> until day number four. And so you have these days in the creation narrative before the actual sun comes into place. I think it's also important to note that uh, the cosmology of the early Hebrews was not the same as ours, right? They envision these domes, right? Where there's waters above the dome and waters under the dome. And they're trying to kind of make sense of this creation. They also don't understand that the moon in and of itself isn't a light, right? So you have the big light, the small light, that's the sun and the moon. The smaller light just reflects the light of the sun, right? We all know that, but they did not know that. And so one thing just to name is they kind of tell this creation story of the things being created is that there's no need for their lack of modern knowledge to impact how we understand the authority of this text, because their interest is not primarily the same as the interests of modern science. What they're interested in is giving an account for the meaning of this creation, the meaning of their experience, and to differentiate that from other creation accounts where the world is born of violence, and human beings have a degrading place on this earth relative to the gods. So I think it's also important to say that right off the bat. A few things I want to point your attention to, then we'll kind of dive into our first conversation. Notice the refrain. We see this in verse 22. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. God's blessing is over the whole creation. And this creation is good. Be fruitful and multiply means make more of it. That I want to see the borders of this garden that I'm creating expand. That all these creatures uh, give glory to God. God loves the stars. God loves the sun. God loves the moon. God loves the, the winged birds and the creeping animals. The other day, my daughter, KK, asked me a deep theological question. She said, if God is good, why did God create roaches? And I've uh, asked that same question myself, but uh, it's important to name that our preference for a living creature or how we feel about a living creature is not an indicator of whether or not this creature is good you know, God blessed the roaches and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, we might try to stop that uh, multiplication in our own kind of twisted way, but the creation originally, before the fall, which we're going to study in chapter three, was one giant blessing. You don't have violence, you don't have disobedience, you have ecological harmony, and you basically have this scenario where God keeps saying, this is good, this is good, this is good. And before we kind of pause and go into some conversation, just to kind of preview, the best is yet to come, right? Because God's crowning achievement is going to come in verses 26 and 27. 
So I'm going to pause there and we'll go into our uh, first conversation about this text. All right, so we're going to pick up here with verses 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, to everything that creeps in the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So um, God creates humankind in our image, and we can talk about that plural pronoun. I see it as Trinitarian, it can be the royal we. Uh, there's some other options. We talked about that on, on Sunday, but it's in our image. I, I read that as a Trinitarian Christian. Let us make humankind. The Hebrew is Adam. After this use of Adam, the definite article is added, the Adam. But it starts out just with Adam. And this is not a proper noun. It is not Adam, the name. Nor does Adam automatically suggest maleness. And so to translate this as man is misleading. Now, next week, we're going to look at the story in chapter two, which is actually a completely different creation story meant to live alongside this one. And there we do need to read the Adam as being sexually differentiated from the woman, or it's not going to make any sense. But here in this creation narrative, the first time we get the word Adam, we don't really, it's, it's, a, it's not male, female, it's not really clear. Uh, but it is the first human made in God's image and according to God's likeness. And I want to draw a distinction between those words image and likeness because I think they're related, but I also think we can kind of tease out how they're different. We're all made in God's image. We are also called to reflect God's likeness. And part of that is tied to this word dominion. Let them have dominion, dominion over the fish, dominion over the animals, dominion over the earth. It's important to name that Genesis 3 has not happened. So dominion is not the same thing as domination. Uh, dominion is not violent. Dominion's about really a wise stewardship over the creation. Uh, God entrusting his image bearers with extending the borders of the garden, blessing it the same way that he has blessed it. And so the first time we actually get domination is in Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve's mistake, when the consequences of the fall are articulated. Basically, what does it mean to live in a fallen world? And we see domination all over the place there, um, right? We see um, God saying to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you, right? This is not reflective of God's design and creation. This is what life looks like in a post-fall world, 
we're going to see something similar with Cain and Abel, with Noah and his sons, right? So domination is what dominion becomes after the fall. But this idea of dominion is really positive. It's you've been put in charge. Uh, I trust you to breathe my wisdom, my knowledge, my gracious rule into this garden in the same way that I have brought order out of chaos the Adam created in God's image is now given that same task. So in verse 27, we have a little bit of Hebrew poetry, and this is ancient poetry. It would have been recited and well-known long before this was ever written down. We know it's poetry because of how it reads in the Hebrew. Um, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we have the two sexes uh, created together, bearing God's image and relationship. And then we have the blessing. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And that same blessing that is given to the rest of the creation is given to the humans made in God's image. And not only is this good, but in verse 31, we're told God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And so adding that word indeed and adding the word very in front of good is meant to basically punctuate that this is a very good thing, that you as a created being are a very good thing, that you're made in God's image, that you have God's blessing, that you have a place on this earth, you've been given dominion, and that there is something holy and wonderful about your life and about being a human being. One other thing I want to point out before we go into our conversation, really two things. Number one is that the humans and the animals were given trees with fruit and seeds and all kinds of things to eat. They were not given the animals to eat. Okay. So even though eating meat and uh, killing other animals and eating them was very kosher and appropriate under uh, Jewish law, and even sanctified, for instance, with Jesus fishing as a resurrected person with his disciples. And, you know, we have the story from Acts where God tells Cornelius, kill and eat, you know, basically to say what God has called clean, you must not call profane. I think it's also important to say that in the very beginning, killing and eating animals, whether a human did it or another animal did it, was not part of the design. And I think that's going to be important, not because we all have this ethical mandate to be vegetarians. I just had beef tenderloin for lunch. So I'm not suggesting that this is where this conversation should go. But what I am saying is that the violence we see in creation, right, the killing, that this was not part of the original design, and it's most likely not part of the new Jerusalem. And so whenever we have animal relationships spoken of in the prophets, we have the story of the lion and the lamb lying down with each other because that's what they did in Genesis 1 and 2 as they fruit from the trees together. But only in a fallen world will we start to eat each other. And the other thing I want to say about the, the seeds is that we have these Christological hints buried in the text. And, you know, Jesus once said in the Gospel of John that unless a seed goes into the earth and dies, it remains just a single seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here you have God giving people seeds that die and bear much fruit. 
And so you actually have like sacrificial death embedded in this text. That's what a seed is. It, it goes into the ground, it dies, and it's resurrected as a tree with apples or pears or, or whatever else. Now, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I do think it's important to name that this idea of nourishing the world through the death of something, right? A seed going into the ground and sprouting up as a tree that feeds people, that it's not too far of a stretch, I think, to you know, look for some nice hints of Christology, you know, because Jesus drew on these metaphors whenever he would say things like, unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it can't feed people. And here you have seeds going into the ground and feeding people. But of course, the link Jesus made was he was that seed, that his death would ultimately be that, which was food. He called it true food, true drink uh, for the world. So I want us to look for those hints of Jesus's presence in this text as we read it.